0: The text this morning is Luke, and it's Luke chapter 18. So begin turning there, if you would, please. You know, folks say from time to time, pastors, you guys need to do a better job at uh, coming up with illustrations. And uh, and why can't you just be, pastor, like, you know, Jesus. Jesus used parables, right? Jesus used these illustrations, and, and you, you could teach that way too. It'd be a lot more engaging and entertaining as far as sermons and messages are concerned, right? Well, I, I, I want to remind you that when Jesus uses parables, sometimes it's not quite what you think. Uh, Jesus did use them uh, quite regularly. We're going to study one of them this morning. We're going to study one here in Luke 18 that's very, very familiar to most folks who've read the New Testament oh, a time or two and uh, been, in, been in church But whether you're brand new to parables or maybe this is so, so familiar that you could almost recite it uh, verbatim from memory, what I want to remind you is something that Jesus said. At times when he uses parables, they are altogether mysterious. They are confusing. They confront something and sneak up on us. There are people in the audience that understand and appreciate it. There's others that... Uh, that chafe and get angry when Jesus tells parables, but he clarifies this when the disciples were confused back in Luke 8. Now, mind you, we're at Luke 18 today, but back in Luke 8, Jesus brings this clarifying word. He says, To you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others, they are in parables, that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. So sometimes, sometimes it's not quite what it appears, and it actually confronts or it, 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 it reveals things in our heart that we didn't realize. And especially for those who are outside of it, they, they may not understand ever uh, the meaning of that. Now, let's go to a modern-day story, okay? Uh, let, let me let me go ahead and, and, and engage with maybe an illustration. Uh, here it is. It's a story that I heard someone tell. Uh, let's just call the young boy Frank. There was a young boy Uh, his name was Frank. Frank was walking with his dad one day. He was heading to a particular store. Along the way, they see at the bike shop that there's some really cool new bikes that have come in. And Frank's really been having his heart set on a new bike. And uh, Christmas is a really long way away. He's got his heart set on this one. It's a special edition. He begins to save. He begins to, to do side jobs and and, and his, whatever he can pull together, he is saving up the money, diligently working, trying to get enough money for the bike. It's really way beyond his reach. And, uh, and so, he, but it doesn't stop him, right? He is, he is going to press forward and saving up with earnest, uh, with, with, with diligence for this bike. Finally gets to the, to the point where the, the special edition is about to be sold. He goes to the, to the store and the owner realizes he do, still doesn't have enough money. And his dad smiles and says, son. That's okay. I just appreciate all your hard work. I'll cover the rest. Let's get the bike for you. Well, that's a great story, isn't it? That's wonderful. That's like chicken soup for the soul. And uh, we could just go home now, right? Well, let's, let's take the story. Now, mind you, when I first heard it, here's how it was applied. Let's imagine that it's a story that is supposed to illustrate how God relates to us and how we relate to God in his grace and our work, our obedience, our devotion. So the way it works is you try your best and uh, you're, you're a good person. You're, you're conscientious. Uh, you're, you're, you're kind. You try to act and, and, and think like Jesus. And at the end of the day, you, you, you know, you're never going to be perfect. After all, we're only human. But at the end of the day, you try your best. And then God the Father comes and he meets you with his grace to cover the rest. Isn't that a great story? No, it's not. And let me be frank. It is bad news. That is not gospel. That is not what the scripture teaches. He is not covering up for our gaps. The gospel is not that way. Salvation is of the Lord from beginning to the end. We bring nothing. We bring nothing to our salvation except the sin that required it in the first place. For Jesus to die on the cross to to form for us an entire substitute that we could not bridge a a chasm way too much for God. So, but the fact that we almost wanted it to to be true, and some of you may have been kind of dialed in as if that were true, I want to press on that for a second this morning as we come to this text, because the person I heard that from was a Mormon. And they have a very distorted understanding of what the Bible actually teaches, I'm sad to say. Thanks be to God for Jesus bringing some wisdom and clarity in this particular text. So, if you would please stand in deference to God's word, we're going to look at Luke 18, beginning at verse 9. He, that is Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or ext- extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, verse 13, the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breath, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Verse 15, now there they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when his disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let me ask his help. Father, we do ask that right now you would uh, be pleased to come and grant to us clarity, clarity about your word, about the culture of that time, about our own hearts and our own lives right now. Uh, You told us, you promised us that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light into our path. So may it be that because of your spirit working and may most of all, we have clarity about the person and the work of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So in these uh, few verses that I just read, uh, there are uh, three persons or parties and and young people here's your assignment hopefully there's at least a few pins in the pews around you your assignment is to try to capture these are three people pray uh if you will imagine that they're, they're they're people approaching god and i want you to draw as young people as you think about this and you might even if you bring a copy of your drawing you might even get a sticker heads up uh, not that you deserve that because you just need to come ask you for mercy uh, here, here's the reality. I want you to draw a picture of what you're hearing in these three groups, if you would. Okay, as we work for you. This is not for you, 12 and above. Okay, just try to engage with what I'm teaching here. But that's for you. Here's, here's what I think we see here. There's a Pharisee, there's a tax collector, and some annoying children. Um, so you draw a picture of that, right? Now, my, my headings, like I listed in the order of service there, here's my, here's my headings. There's a pious man's prayer there's a scumbag's posture, and then there's a, children's, there's a child's place. A pious man's prayer, 9 to 12, a scumbag's posture, which is 13 to, and 14, and then there's a child's place. So I want to start by just unpacking these two men, because they're the ones that are primarily in focus in comparison and contrast. Uh, these, these two, uh, this pious religious man and a scumbag. Uh, both of them, by the way, believe in God. Okay, so it's it's not a, it's not a, it's not right out of the gates a theological difference in that regard, but that there is you know they both are worshipers. they're both at the temple uh, both of them the Pharisee and the tax collector uh, or as your translation may say the publican uh, the, these two are, they come both to the temple they both uh, they both claim to know God they both want to pray they both want to have their conscience and. Uh, you know, uh, they want to be at peace with God. And so they're both in this same vicinity, in the same activity, uh, but two very different outcomes that Jesus wants us to see. He's, he's bringing some clarity by telling this parable, at least to those who have ears. To those who do not have ears, it remains forever, perhaps to them, a mystery. Now, you know in life that there are times when simply the name of a person... Or a place or a team, right? Immediately elicits a response. And you go, ah. Oh. And if you've had any experience in church or any experience with New Testament teaching, then you hear the word Pharisee and you go, okay, we're going to let this be participatory. So I'm giving you opportunities to draw pictures and even make sounds this morning. When you hear the word Pharisee, you go, thank you. That's right not that hard it's it, we all we're all like hardwired to know that when you hear pharisee you're like well that's definitely bad and that's definitely not me the pharisee by the way when um, the pharisee here the original audience was pharisee right because verse nine says it's people that are, are that have this characteristic in our text, it says that they are the ones who trusted in themselves and had contempt for others. There's more to it, of course. And, and then when the when the the tax collector, you know, when he goes, this pious man who's, who's religious, when he goes to pray, listen to his argument, right? He's like, look at me. I mean, when he goes through his resume about giving and generosity and integrity and uh, truthfulness and his devotion, stuff like that, you're like, dude. The, the Pharisees who were listening to this, they're like, yeah, that's that's our guy. This is this is my kind of people. And let's be honest even further. We would say if we had to choose our neighbors. Right. Which is which is a bummer because so often you don't. It's just like family members that are annoying. Right. But, you know, you got a Pharisee as a neighbor. That's good, folks. Right. When you when you read this and you hear him describe himself, let's assume he's telling the truth. I think he is. I think that he does all these things. I don't think he's making this up. He would be a good citizen. I would be glad for this guy to watch my dog when I'm out of town. You get the picture. That's how they were viewed. They were not viewed with the Ugh, Pharisees. They were viewed as the good people. But then there's the tax collector, Right? Even to this very day, that too has a negative connotation. But hey, look, if you're working for the IRS and you're an auditor, you're doing your work. You're doing your job. No one's going to fault you for that. You should be compensated. The tax collector in that day, mind you, Israel, the people of God, their land is indwelt. It's it's been overtaken. They're occupied by the Roman authorities. The Romans want their taxes. And so they employ different regions. They would have uh, tax collectors who would come and say, hey, I know that there's X amount of folks that live in this uh, this province, and so my duty is to collect the appropriate number of taxes for that. Uh, I'm going to bid the job; I'll go do it. But if I collect more, well, that's money in my pocket. So they would go, and, and and they were viewed essentially they were Jews going to their own people and and taking more money than was required, even maybe maybe by the tax. This uh, is this is a. This is a a scumbag. You know, we would think this is a person who has low integrity and character. This is a bad person. A modern day equivalent of this. Maybe it would be someone who's an addict. So oh. and you will know that that person. They are just they're they're just gone. You know, they're the kind of people that steal from their own parents. I Can't stand those people. This is bad news. This is a bad reputation. The Pharisee is pious in his outward life. It's it's admirable. It's commendable. He's a man of integrity, honesty, generosity, but his inner life, his heart, Jesus is saying, is not right. So we can't always judge, of course, by appearances. He thinks, this pious Pharisee, religious person, that God will essentially hear him, that God, will, God essentially owes him because of his obedience and his devotion, He's worked hard. He presumes that God is grateful. Not not only that, but obliged to forgive and and bless him. He's proud. He's, he's, He's reminding God. He's boasting in the presence of the Almighty. The grace is for those who work their hardest. And then, you know, that little bit at the end that you just can't quite cover. God's grace will be there. Right, That's all God wants. He's going to give the grace to anybody who just works really hard and proves to be a pretty good person, and he'll cover the rest. That's what a Pharisee would say on their worst of days, when they got a little bit in touch with ways that they were not right with God's law. How do I say this? Strange as it may sound, religion is deceptive. I know that's kind of the occupational hazard that I walk in every day. Uh, Religion, particularly religious pride, can make us spiritually deceived and blind at times. The heart of the problem here is his false comparison. That's where it really surfaces. Look at verse 11 because he says what? All the things that he, he just reminded us that we think are commendable of his external character. His heart is exposed in verse 11 when he says, I'm glad I'm not like this tax collector. That's very revelatory, is it not? Of really his true posture, his true approach to God and prayer showing up and how he treats and relates to other people. You know what it's like. You've got people in your life that are worse than you. Of course you do, right? People, people that are notorious, maybe. Maybe even people that are um, their lives are troubled, and some of that even spills over on you, and it really it really bothers you. It bothers me at times. This person, we see a sinner, or worse, we see a sinner who has offended us, and we might say, Yeah, we're all sinners, which is true. For all, Paul says in Romans, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But you're like, yeah, but that person's a real bad sinner. They've offended me. And we think to ourselves, I'm glad I'm not like one of those people. But I want to tell you this morning that the only thing worse than an adulterer or an addict or an abuser or a thief is being proud that you're not one of them. I think that's what Jesus would have us see. It's one of the governing principles of humility that Jesus is trying to, Guide us into. Here we see the humility in contrast to the tax collector. Because let's just briefly look at his posture. He's not in denial. He stands off. Look at verse 13. It says that he doesn't come near. He he's conscientious of this. He's standing alone by himself at a distance, and he he is his posture is different because he's beating his breast. He has sorrow over his sin. It troubles him. He understands it. He's not, in, he's not trying to justify, minimize, hide it. He knows without a doubt. He has nothing to boast or brag in. He's saying, please, God, have mercy. The tax collector, his heart is right with God because he's humble. His comparison is accurate. He doesn't have the false comparison of looking at others, which is such a reference point for us sometimes. Let's admit it, right? We look at other people and we say, I'm, I'm bad, right? Young people, do you ever say this? My, I, I did something, but my sibling did something worse. Let me tell you about it. Well, I like, you know, I think the same thing with some of my people in my life. His reference point isn't other people, it's the holiness of God, his maker. The tax collector understands that God in his holiness and perfection and purity is something that he can't even come near to. It changes his posture. He doesn't even look up. It's like the prophet Isaiah, who coming into just a glimpse of the glory, the presence of God says, I, I'm a man of unclean lips. I, 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 he's, he's overwhelmed. He knows his posture is to be humble. I'm unclean. I'm not worthy. I don't have anything to offer. He has, no, he has no speech prepared in his prayer. He doesn't, he doesn't rehearse all of the good things that he's done. He just cries out with the most simplicity you could imagine, have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy. Who is a person who is right with God? And we know that's what Jesus is driving at because at the very end in verse 17, he says, this is who enters the kingdom. All that we've, had, well, all that we've seen in the context here with Luke Prior is about the kingdom of God. Jesus is now reminding both the Pharisee, who's his direct audience, and those who are listening in as disciples who may be tempted to operate the way that the Pharisee does, that this is how it works. This is how I want you to think and, and operate. The person who is right with God and will inherit the kingdom, well, Jesus is saying there's only two avenues. It really boils down to this. You either have the avenue and mindset that the approach and entrance to the kingdom of God is through a righteousness that we produce based off of self. Or we have a righteousness that is apart from us, alien, different, outside of us, given to us by God through the person and work of Jesus. So it's either a self-righteousness or it's a God-centered righteousness that makes us sinners justified except self righteousness doesn't work that's the whole point here it's a false understanding of how god is and how bad we are the person who has a god given righteousness understands that it's only through the blood of jesus sacrifice only through the blood they both were there they both were there for the blood they were both at the temple they both knew that the merc- that that part of seeking god's mercy was the sacrifice and the shedding of blood in the temple Who's right with God who do you esteem who who, who do you who do, who do you hold in high regard hopefully not self but man that's like a that's like a default mechanism right that we function in and out of Luke 18 verse 14 Jesus's assessment and invitation here I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I think it is, as I said at the beginning, we are deeply hardwired to say, of all things, I know that I'm not, I know that I know that I know that I'm not like that Pharisee. But does it show up in our prayer life? Does it show up in our posture? Does it show up in the ways that we treat other people? Like I said, if we are honest, spiritual pride can be alive in us. It can be lodged. It can be blinding. First, to, first Peter, excuse me, chapter five says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble this is what he says too. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Now, that is a lot easier said than done. And although at times we think it's easier to submit to someone uh, because they have more knowledge or more power or more, more prestige or a position of sorts, the truth is, humility is difficult for all of us in regard to everyone. Let me, let me say that again. It, the, the truth is, humility is difficult in regard to anyone other than ourselves. Because pride wages a war within us. And, and John Calvin, the great Swiss reformer, put it so well in his little, uh, the golden booklet of the Christian life. I still remember the coffee shop I was sitting in in grad school when I read this quote. I can tell you what road I was looking out over that day. Calvin writes, The poor yield to the rich, the common people to the upper ten, the servants to their masters, the ignorant to the scholars, but there is nobody who does not imagine that he is really better than the others. Everyone flatters himself and carries a kingdom in his breast. In... Other words. In other words, even if we have no special education, standing, position, authority, credentials, as the world would have it, we still, at times, carry around and create a little kingdom of dominion, even right here in our heart. And if you don't think that's true this morning, okay, uh, I, I I appreciate you internally disagreeing with me, uh, but let me ask you to. Just press in a little bit and consider a few of these. You might be a Pharisee if, okay? All right, so here's the exercise. Think about this in response to various situations in your life if it's not true. When someone has hurt us by what they said or did and something rises up in me and we say, you can't do that to me. I'm just not going to take it. You really don't know who you're messing with, do you? In a conflict, you might be a Pharisee if, in a conflict, you catch yourself saying, I'm not going to be the one who's apologizing today. When someone you hear of experiences a moral failure and we say to ourselves, I would never do that. When others' inadequacies or their preferences calls you to rise up and take control of the situation, and you say, get out of my way. I don't need you. I do this myself. This is ridiculous. When someone asks you to carry out what you might consider a lowly task, and we think to ourselves, this is totally below me. When you're in the middle of a debate with someone, we may conclude that our knowledge is superior and we delight in merely winning the argument with no regard for the person. When someone offers us a piece of advice, you might be a Pharisee if, when someone offers you a piece of advice, and it sounds generally good, but, you know, consider the source. When life's circumstances are, are sour, and our common refrain again and again is, this is not fair. Perhaps when we think of our own experiences with God, make us a little bit better than other people who haven't been so blessed as if the blessing of God was his reward for our own goodness. Not what it truly is, which is mercy, despite our lack of goodness and our failings. Where are you today? Where are you going to be? Where are you going to where are you going to go? Right. Like maybe you maybe I mean, by the way, you could be entirely externally. A A scumbag but internally be a Pharisee. Because the heart of the issue is the heart of the issue, as it always is in the the Word of God and in the struggle of humanity. The best place to be is a child's place at the feet of Jesus. And that's where these last three verses are, 15, 16, 17. I'm so glad Luke included it and the way that he laid it out this way. Did you notice the fact that at face value, all of these are different than what we would assume, right? We say, we hear Pharisee, we're like, oh, that's a bad guy. And then we, we, then we hear about the tax collector and we say, well, he, he's the good guy in the story. And then the, and then the children, they're like, oh, well, they're the special ones, right? Children are so special. I hate to tell you this, but none of that's true in the ancient Near East. In those days, like I said at the very beginning, the Pharisee, is the religious pious person held in high regard, well esteemed. The tax collectors, is a scumbag and the children are just not that valuable. It's hard for us to imagine that, right? In, in the realm where, you know, children, I mean, we, we just idolize children and all of their needs and activities and specialness and that's why we have places like, you know, Gray Wolf Lodge. I've never been there, but I heard it's awesome. It's why we have things like, you know, Pump and Jump or whatever the place is now. That's now the, Children, children, children. Children are are for us protected. Yes, they are significant. Yes, but in the ancient Near East, they were useful for labor. Kids, why don't you use the backside of that drawing to just you know show children in the ancient Near East that they were working and laboring at a young age? No, that's not a good sight either. But you get the picture. They were part of the low class. They were not significant. And so it would make sense in some ways that the disciples would say, No, 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 don't, 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 no, you go near Jesus. Parents, slow down. You know, we're not going to crowd Jesus out with these insignificant little rugrats over here. Jesus is teaching here. And Jesus says, no, come to me. It would be common for parents in that day, in that tradition of God's people to bring them to the rabbi to be blessed. It's interesting, though, that they're even interested to this kind of renegade teacher, Jesus, as a rabbi, they're going to, Bring him the parents here because of let's read it again. All three of these verses. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them, bless them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called to them, let the children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Jesus here is commending parents who bring their kids to Jesus. That's a good thing. What do you want, parents, here today for your children? Well, I would guess that you want your children to be making good grades and be socially well-adjusted. That they would be prosperous. They would be well-rounded. They might attain and achieve things uh, Beyond what you did, which is really easy for my kids, but anyway, uh, you know, where are you today with your children? Do you want that for them? Good, you're natural. That's that's ordinary, but here's the extraordinary thing that's being commended here. Do you want them to inherit the kingdom of God? Yes. I want them? Want the children of this church to know Jesus with our time, our priorities, and our actions and our activities. We're showing our children that Jesus is the very essence of life. That the centrality of Jesus and the sovereignty of God are so important. It's a promise that we make, that that parents in this church have made, that you as a people, when we have baptized our our precious children, that you will raise them up to, quote, Ephesians 6, 4, in the discipline and the instruction, the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Our children, they are vulnerable. They are defenseless in many ways, but our children are not innocent. They need the grace and truth of Jesus in their life. So let's make disciples of our children, praying for their souls, teaching them, talking with them, asking them questions. I love it when I hear from parents in our church about the questions that their children ask them. Please tell me more of those stories please have more of those conversations. It is very scary, it's overwhelming to consider the task that's commended to us as parents. I know some of you are not, but maybe someday you will, and you do have influence over young people. Regardless of where you bring them or what you pour into them, the biggest piece of childbearing, child-rearing advice in reality is, let's face it, is through imitation. Some of you are saying, I will never be like my mother or my father. Some of you, well into your age, well into your 50s and 60s, would be tempted to say, I'll never be like my mother or father. But regardless, adults, uh, we live. There's an indelible mark our children have because we as parents, it's God's design. It's kind of scary when you're bad as a parent. The greatest thing that you can do to bring your child to Jesus is to go to Jesus yourself. Show them your need, not for the morality of Jesus, but for the mercy of Jesus. Please. When Jesus wants to receive and bless these children here in verse 16 and 17, he's turning all things upside down. This is just one of the reasons that we too baptize our children. Even children belong to the kingdom of God. They can inherit someday through repentance and faith. We pray that they'll do that even at a very early age. That's God's business. But I'll tell you this. I want us to be a church who welcomes children. They've been kind of quiet today. You guys are awesome. But even on the days when it's crazy and loud in here, I want to tell all the young people in this church, you are welcome here. And young people are tremendously, tremendously perceptive and insightful. They know when they're welcome at a place. And I'm not talking about activities and shows and bells and, and candy. I'm just saying, given walking into a room, children know where they are welcome. God's regard is for all, for everyone. The emphasis is not here on the virtue of children. Oh, they're sweet, they're innocent, they have simple faith. No, Jesus is highlighting not so much their virtue, but their low estate. Children now, and even more so then when Jesus was speaking this way, were weak and helpless, dependent. Children didn't have power or influence. They were insignificant in the world. As one writer and commentator I studied this week said, they have no credit, no clout, and no claims. But frankly, that's exactly how we are to receive the kingdom of God no clout, no claim, no credit. The children here are not being blessed for all they have. Instead, they're being blessed for what they lack. Will you impress the Lord with what you have or what you've done? Or Will you please him with a childlike faith and surrender? We don't need to look in the mirror for admiration, looking at ourselves or out of the corner of our eye in judgment and comparison with other people. I just need to go and you just need to go and sit at the feet of Jesus. And what will we find at the feet of Jesus? The thing that we need the most, which isn't a change of circumstance, which isn't a new spouse, which isn't a new job, which isn't something to fill in the gaps. What we find at the feet of Jesus is the thing that we need the most, which is mercy. And by the way, we don't need the temple. They needed the temple. They were going there for a purpose, but we don't need the temple. We don't need the temple to pray. We don't need the temple to meet with God. There were sacrifices there. As I said earlier, there was blood there, but there's no longer need for that because Jesus is our temple and his blood is sufficient. The sacrificial lamb that he is dying on the cross is where we have access to God to cry out for mercy. Please, Lord, have mercy. Jesus is the temple. His blood cleanses our hearts. And Jesus is the one who gives us confidence so that we go to God in that spirit, in that posture of prayer. Please bring this right now, Holy Spirit, to this place. We have never and we will never. And I I grapple with this, honestly. You will never. you You are a child of God and you will have a childlike faith the rest of your life. And that's okay because you'll never, and I'm speaking to myself when I say this, outgrow your need for the grace and mercy of God. We need to be carried by the spirit of God to the to the foot of the cross to experience that. Well, let's pray, Father, Lord, we have learned a great deal about the kingdom, even in this two chapters here in Luke And we confess that first and foremost, you are the king and we are not. Would you forgive us, Lord God, for our self-righteousness, our our self-righteous attitudes and our our unrighteous actions? God, have mercy. I Pray that you would send us your spirit to lead our hearts and our lives to repentance and a daily dependence. Lord, I, I, I pray that you would help when we think about children and we think about Families, even in our own community, where death and darkness and tragedy has come, we pray that you would override, that you would, you would, you would meet people in their need, that you would shower mercy. I pray that more people, even rattled in their own losses and grief, as parents, as as people in the community that are confused, parents who, like myself, find themselves insufficient and inadequate for the task, that we God would be humbled and. Even when we hear bad things, we wouldn't compare ourselves. We would just come and run to your feet and say, God, yet again, I need mercy. Lord, I pray you'd give us boldness today to apply this, to share this. But first, give us humility, that ever-consuming sense of self-importance that just inhibits us from seeing and appreciating the kingdom like a child. Would you please hear us? On account of Jesus, who himself became a helpless child, said in his name that we pray. And as he taught his disciples, saying together, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth.